It is good to be with you this morning. So please take your Bibles and turn or scroll to Galatians chapter 2. The passage that we are addressing this morning, which really is a continuation from last week, uh, is a passage in which Paul is giving an account of his life story, his history, from the moment of his conversion all the way up until he made his first trip to meet all of the apostles and the church leaders in Jerusalem. This is an extraordinarily important piece of information, not only for the sake of the gospel, but also Christian history, which is why Paul includes this bit of his story. He is not sharing this just to kind of get to know you better type of a thing. But by the Spirit, he is giving us important information so that we can be absolutely certain alongside the Galatian church that the gospel that we have believed and put our faith in is the truth, that it is from God, and that it is not from men. Paul is a very persuasive and logically consistent thinker. He is pulling back the curtain just a little bit to give us a bit of the why behind the what. This background information is interesting, I hope, but it's designed to build your confidence in the truth of the good news of Jesus Christ and in the power of the good news or the gospel of Jesus Christ as it was ministered by Paul and the rest of the apostles. Now, depending on how we work the math, from the time that Paul became a Christian, which is when he became an apostle, to when he made this trip to Jerusalem to visit not some but all of the apostles and the church leaders was about 14 or 17 years. Paul did not become a Christian and immediately operate in his office as an apostle. Although Christ informed him at his conversion that that would be his life calling. During this time, before he went up to Jerusalem, it's true, after time he did begin his missionary journeys and was ministering, but that was not right away. So last week we saw that Paul made a very strong argument. There were four things that Paul wanted the Galatian church to know about him and about his ministry, and in particular, the gospel that he taught, that he ministered. The first thing is simply this. The gospel was something that God revealed directly to Paul. Paul did not go to seminary to learn this. He wasn't taught by other people. He didn't go read some interesting books and come up with this idea. In fact, to underscore that, he says this. He reminds them that he absolutely hated Christians. He hated the church. He was absolutely opposed to this new sect called the followers of the way. In fact, it was his ambition to stamp them out completely. Paul was not on good terms with the gospel that he now ministered. 
Beyond that, he goes a little step further. He says, listen, not only did I hate Christians, not only did I make it my ambition to just stop this whole thing, he says, I was actually enjoying what I was doing. I, was, I did not have a, consci- a crisis of conscience. I was not double-guessing myself. I was not questioning or having doubts about my zeal to uphold the traditions of my fathers. He was loving every minute of it. He was going beyond the call of duty. He was going outside of Israel to harass and persecute Christians. And even when the Lord saved him by his grace, he did not consult with other people to learn this new message. This was directly from the Lord himself by revelation. It would be three years before he would even meet some of his colleagues, Peter and James. Our passage last week ended with this beautiful phrase, the end of chapter 1. They all glorified God because of me. When Paul made that initial trip to meet with Peter and Paul, and I'm sorry, Peter and James and some of the other believers... He said, hang on, the guy who used to persecute us is now one of us. That's the power of the gospel. And they gave glory to God because of what God had done in Paul's life. So we'll pick up the action in chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles. In order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be the pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas, And to me, that we should go on to the Gentiles, that they 
that they should go on to the Gentiles and to they to the circumcised. Verse 10, which we'll look at next week, only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing that I was eager to do. Now the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, this is not just a little special group that we're a part of. You sometimes talk about our tribe, our people, the people who think like us on different things, maybe politics or, or whatever it might be. The gospel is the power of God to salvation. It's transformative. And we're not the same when we embrace Christ. So after 14 years or so, Paul sets out to Jerusalem for a formal meeting with the church leaders in Jerusalem, specifically all of the apostles. His language is very telling. As I said, it's depending on how you work the math. It's either 14 or 17. It's hard to tell exactly what he is when he talks about the initial three years and then the the 14 years. But the point that he is making is simply this. It was a long time before Paul actually and formally met all of his colleagues, his fellow workers, these apostles who were entrusted with the gospel message. These are the people who are found the foundational authority of this new entity called the church of Jesus Christ. It was so important that when Paul met these people, that the message that each of them was preaching would line up with one another. What a train wreck that would be if Paul reaches out his hand and shakes his hand to the different apostles and they're saying something different. But the truth is, they were not. They were all entrusted with the same message Salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, when Paul went up to Jerusalem, he did something very significant. He brought with him Titus. Titus, we'll call him Paul's test case. Titus had a mother who was Jewish and a father who was Greek. Titus was not circumcised. Now, circumcision is a Jewish religious rite performed on an infant baby boy. And we need to pause here for a moment to understand the significance of circumcision in the mind of the Jews, circumcision will, will play predominantly throughout Paul's letter to the Galatians. Both religiously and culturally, circumcision set Jews apart from those around them. In many ways, to be Jewish was to be circumcised. I will state the obvious. It was far preferable that this rite be performed when they are infants and not when they are older. 
Now, for Paul to bring Titus to Jerusalem and say that he was a part of the family of God, but he had not been circumcised, was a jarring statement for some. So let's develop this thought just a little bit because we need to appreciate how significant and important circumcision was for the Jews. This was an obvious crisis point for many who were opposing the Christian message or even for some who had assimilated into it. What do we do with this? For so long, it has been embedded within us that the people of God are the ones who are circumcised or of the circumcised. But the Christian message is not requiring this of anyone. So to understand how deeply important this was for so many of them, for the Jewish believers even, I'd like to explore this just a little bit. Do you remember David? Go back to the Old Testament. David and Goliath. You might recall. David was sent by his dad to bring some food for his older brothers. There was a Philistine by the name of Goliath. The two armies would have this daily standoff with all the soldiers and Goliath would come out every day and he would taunt the Israelite soldiers. There was not one Israelite soldier who was willing to do battle with this behemoth. He would come out day after day and he would make fun of the Israelites. Now enter scrawny little David. Little shepherd boy coming to bring a little, little snack for his brothers. David shows up and he hears Goliath taunting, making fun of the Israelites and by extension making fun of their God. David was not intimidated. David was indignant. Who is this joker over here making fun of the living God? I don't care how big he is. God's bigger. But I want you to notice David's exact words. 1 Samuel chapter 17. Verse 26. And David said to the men who stood by him, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away from the reproach of Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? How David explains or how he describes Goliath, he's not interested in his size. He's not interested in the fact that he's bigger than anyone else. Who is this uncircumcised guy that we're afraid of him? Verse 36. 
Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, speaking of himself. And this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. Because he has defied the armies of the living God. Who is this guy? Outside the covenant blessings of God. Outside the blessings of God. Outside the family of God, one of those who serves dead idols, why are we worried about him? Backtrack just a little bit more. Remember Samson and Delilah? Samson was a Jew. He was set apart for God's purposes. Delilah Delilah was a Philistine. Samson falls in love with Delilah. He goes to his parents and he said, hey, I need you all to go down to Philistine. I want you to go down to the the Philistines, and I want you to to take Delilah so I can marry her. Their reaction was not a very excited one. Judges chapter 14, verse 3. But his father and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you must go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson was like, yeah, Uh, but get her for me. She's, she's, She's the one. When you read the Old Testament, you see the importance of circumcision. The Jews had always been the people of God. Their distinguishing mark among them was circumcision. The gospel now comes and discards that. The acid test for Paul was to see if he would bring Titus to the Jerusalem leaders, the church, would they require Titus to be circumcised? Now, in an affirmation regarding the content of the gospel, that the Jerusalem church and the apostles were then preaching, and the gospel that Paul was preaching, they did not require this of Titus. There were, however, false teachers who were not even Christians, who were insisting that everyone who is going to be called a Christian must submit to being circumcised. They were not going to allow anyone into the church who had not been circumcised. Paul and the apostles resisted this by no means would they allow for this requirement to be put on anyone to become a Christian. But right from the very beginning, there were false teachers intermingled within the church who were peddling their falsehoods. Paul specifically says in this way, that the simplicity and the purity of the gospel was preserved. The first test case, or a test case, this test case served to preserve the purity of the good news of Jesus Christ then and for us now. 
This is why Paul is giving you this account. So why is this so important? They bring Titus, and he's not required to be circumcised. There's two very important principles that I like to draw out of this. The first one is this. You and I play no part in our salvation in the sense that we're not the ones doing the work. The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, it's a gift. It is not something that you earn or something that you play a part in to make it happen. The gospel is so beautiful because it is all of grace. This is an aspect of the good news that sets it apart from everything else around it. Virtually every philosophy and religion and ideology, somewhere, somehow, in it, is I have to do something. I have to act a certain way. I have to be something. I have to earn this. I have to play some part in making this for me. But friends, that's not the case. The gospel says that Jesus paid it all. That he took our sins upon himself. That we might become, through faith in him, the righteousness of God. He did the heavy lifting. He became sin. That we might become God's righteousness through him. But there's something else. And I think this is an aspect that we sometimes overlook. Sometimes we miss this aspect of the gospel. At this very pivotal moment in time, by discarding circumcision, there was a clear signal that was being given that everyone is welcome to the table. No matter where you're from, your ethnic background, the color of your skin, you've got a place at the table through faith in Jesus. It was no small matter for Paul to bring Titus to the Jerusalem church. Because of the message of this fledgling church, if it was going to stand, someone who was of mixed ethnic background could or would and should feel welcome. And he did. This is so crucial for the gospel. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. So we ignore and we reject those false teachers, the Judaizers, who were stirring up trouble in Jerusalem. These were the same people that were stirring up trouble in Galatia as well. These are the ones who are saying, look, fine, We can call Gentiles Christians or believers too, but they have to submit to the things that we've had to submit to all this time. The gospel is absolutely revolutionary because we do not play a part in it happening or to make it happen. And this is not for one particular group of people. 
I've said it many, many times. It's a great privilege of mine to represent Durwood and visit many of our missionaries throughout the world. All these flags here. For those of you who have experienced this yourself, it is so beautiful to be with people who speak a different language than you do, whose culture is different than your own. Their expressions are different. But we're all worshiping the same Lord. Excuse me. It might look different from culture to culture, from place to place. But how beautiful it is to hear testimonies in other countries that sound just like it does here. I was going this way and God saved me. And now I'm going this way. It's beautiful. What is significant as well in this passage is simply this. There was a very, there was another very significant outcome to this visit to Jerusalem, and that's this. Paul was affirmed as a true apostle, number one. The authenticity of his message was tested and approved. And his role was cemented. Paul would be the primary apostle to bring the gospel to the non-Jewish world, to the Gentile world. We see that in all of Paul's missionary journeys. We see that in all the letters he would write to the Gentile churches in the New Testament. Now keep in mind, God used Peter in Acts chapter 10 to be the first apostle to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. It's also true that in many cities that Paul would visit, he would first go to the synagogue and preach the gospel. So Paul also had a ministry to the Jews that were dispersed. But it was Paul that God would use to bring the gospel to the non-Jewish world. Oh, the irony. The irony that the one who was the flag bearer for Judaism and and specifically for the traditions of his fathers would be the very one who would bring the gospel of good news to the non-Jews. All of which leads us to a very important point. Last week, I was very intentional about highlighting various ways that we face spiritual opposition in our lives and in our ministries. I mean, think about it. Here's Paul giving up a life of prestige and luxury. He exchanges that for pushback and and persecution and a difficult life for the gospel. And now he has people actually questioning whether he's the right one. So I ask you this morning, have you ever faced these nagging questions? God could never use me. He might use him, and I know he'll use her. But I'm not good enough. I'm dumb. I'm not smart enough. I'm not funny enough. People don't like me. 
I'm boring. I have too much in my past that just disqualifies me. It's funny, those of us who were raised in Christian homes and who have followed the Lord from the beginning, we can often feel like we don't have an exciting testimony. Well, I heard about Jesus when I was young. I trusted in him and I've been walking with him and here I am. Sometimes those who come to Christ later on in life are like, wow, if they only knew who I was, God could never use me. Sometimes we all feel that way because growing up in a Christian home doesn't guarantee certain things. But I'd like to settle this for us this morning. The fact that God saved Paul in such an extraordinary way should serve as a reminder that God can and God will use each and every single one of us. I told you the story of how I became your pastor some 16 years ago or so. The absolute terror that filled my heart in filling this position. Do they know what they're asking? And here we are. Saints, what the Lord is looking for, please hear me on this. What the Lord is looking for is men, women, and children who are submitted to him, who believe him, and who are ready to be used by him. Growing up in Reston Bible Church, when we finally built our building, I was like 14 years old. Our pastor had this nice wooden background uh, behind him. He had two verses engraved. One of them was Second Chronicles chapter 16, verse 9. In the old King James, it says this, The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the entire earth to show himself strong in the behalf of those whose heart is perfect towards him. That is what the Lord is looking for. Someone on any little square inch that takes him at his word, who believes what God says about him or her is true and wants to be used by him. So friend, is that your heart's disposition towards God? Do you desire for him to use you? Do you believe that he will use you? Do not let your heart be distracted or filled with the worries of this life. Don't be distracted by all those things that, that glitter around you. Let's ask the Lord how we can be good news to those around us. The Lord's work in you is faithful. It is true. Just as the Apostle Paul experienced the kickback, the questionings, like how can God be using you? I promise you, you will as well from time to time. You remember that you are complete in Christ. You remember that you are redeemed, you are restored, you are his. So next week we'll focus on that one statement by the leaders in the Jerusalem church, verse 10. It's a brief comment, 
But in my opinion, it is so important for us to see. Let's bow and prepare our hearts for prayer. The gospel, the good news of Jesus was such a game changer in Paul's day, and it is today. It's so important that we understand the clarity and the beauty and the simplicity of what the gospel is. The good news of Jesus Christ is not go to church every Sunday and you're good. Give money to people and you're good. That is actually a burden. Because if I have to prove myself to God, I'm going to fail every time. The good news of Jesus Christ is good because it removes that burden that we carry. Salvation is described as a gift. We don't earn it, we don't work for it, but we receive it. We believe that Jesus Christ is who he said he is, that he suffered in our behalf on the cross. He died for sinners, was buried, and rose again. And we turn in repentance to him, the only one who can save us from our sins and give us the gift of eternal life. My friend, if you have never put your faith in Christ, the Bible is very clear. The Bible says today is the day of your salvation. Today's it. Don't put it off another day. Don't spend your life trying to just say, ah, you know, hopefully I'm good enough and one day, you know, the scales will work in my favor because they won't. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and trust him alone as your Savior and Lord. Our Father, we give you thanks and praise again this morning. We thank you that we can gather in this way lift praises to your name that we can be encouraged by our time with one another that we can hear the truth of your word thank you for the way that the gospel has come to us oh lord you saved a guy like paul who hated you who hated this message but you transformed him And you used him to tell other people this good news. We pray if there's but one person who has not put their faith in Christ, that today would be that day for them. When they become convinced of their own sin and their own need for a Savior. Lord, we pray that you would fill us with joy and with confidence as we walk with you that we would believe what is said about us in Christ, that we are forgiven completely, that we would have confidence to stand upon our convictions and to be good news to those around us. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.